Do you know why the symbol for the fashion brand Lacoste is a crocodile? If you were starting a worldwide fashion brand, would you choose a crocodile as your mascot or brand image? Perhaps you don't know how the crocodile became associated with the Lacoste brand. Rene Lacoste was the world's top tennis player in the late 1920s. He won seven major singles titles during his career, including multiple victories at Wimbledon, the U.S. Open, and the French Open. His friends called him Le Crocodile, an apt term for his tenacious, determined play on the tennis court. Lacoste accepted the nickname and had a tiny crocodile embroidered on his tennis blazers. When he added it to a line of shirts he designed, the symbol caught on. While hundreds of thousands of people around the world today wear crocodile shirts, the emblem always had a deeper significance for Lacoste's friends, who knew its origin and meaning. For most who don't know why, a crocodile is the brand symbol for Lacoste. The symbol on their shirts have lost its significance. Sadly, it is the same when it comes to the symbol most identified with Christianity, the cross. In the first century, the cross was a symbol of shame. And for those in the early church, it was a symbol reminding them of the death of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who died in their place. Nowadays, I venture to guess, we don't think much about the true significance of it when we see a cross or wear one. In fact, it is fashionable to wear a cross. For many, it is simply a nice piece of jewelry. For actors and musicians, it is simply bling for them. And the larger the cross, the more bling. For some, the cross is a good luck charm that supposedly wards off demons, protects them from harm, and prevents untoward things happening to them. But how many of us wear it as a primary form of identification, indicating that we are followers of Jesus Christ and have a desire to live this life as He so wants. Yet, when most people wear a cross, it has lost its meaning because their lives don't reflect Christ at all. Perhaps it would be better to hide the cross if we won't live a life consistent with how Jesus Christ desires for us to live. You see, when Jesus tells us to pick up our cross daily, He's telling us to identify with Him publicly and faithfully, more than the physical symbol of the cross, the very life you live every day in words and actions, interacting with your parents, spouse, children, teachers, friends, co-workers, is a vivid and visible symbol to the world of your identification with Jesus Christ. So the question is, are you authentically identifying with Christ? I understand the struggle because even though I was the son of a pastor, for many years I was great about hiding my Christian faith. I had no great desire to identify with Jesus Christ, maybe only on Sundays when I happened to attend church. My walk with Christ was inconsistent at best, and I was living a double life. I was like a ninja for Jesus. No one in the world must ever know I'm a Christ follower. I played the game with the best of them the perfect Christian on Sundays, even speaking Christianese. But the rest of the week, I was with the worst of the world. I was great at compartmentalizing the sins of my life and didn't feel guilty about it and letting it bother me. I was the perfect church member, involved, teaching children, joined the choir, 
worshiping God on Sundays. But Monday to Saturday was a different story. In fact, when I gave my life to the Lord and told everyone I was going into the Christian ministry to be a pastor, a very close friend of mine told me, Steve, that's wonderful. I didn't even know you were a Christian. Ouch. It was at that moment that I realized I no longer wanted to live in hypocrisy. Who is the real me? I cannot be two people. I must be able to live authentically and genuinely my Christian life because it was time to own up to my faith in Jesus. That's why you may have noticed that a running theme throughout my pastorate is a call for authentic Christian living, acknowledging that we are not perfect but saved by grace, not pretending we are perfect but on the journey to be more Christ-like. A what-you-see-is-what-you-get lifestyle, and what people should see is Christ in our lives. You see, my friends, the 21st century world is looking for authentic Christian living in Christ followers because they can smell a hypocrite a mile away. So how do you live an authentic Christian life? My challenge for us in this new year is to live authentic Christian lives. I'm not going to challenge you to make spiritual resolutions because those will come automatically when you desire to live Christ-like lives. Simple resolutions without a greater purpose and deep conviction are bound to be broken quickly and won't stick. Just like if you resolve to exercise more and control your food portions and your only motivation is to lose weight, those resolutions will not stick because at some point our cravings will be greater than our desire to lose weight. However, if you resolve to exercise more and control your food portions because your motivation is if you don't, you will die as your doctor has told you, then there certainly will be resolution with a greater purpose. My friends, our motivation to live out authentic Christian lives as Christ followers is so that we can please the God who died and redeemed us and so that a dying world will see Christ in us and come to salvation. I think we all know this, but we often forget it or disregard it. So how do we keep it at the forefront of our mind? Just like a car needs scheduled tune-ups and a bike needs regular alignment, there are three questions we can ask ourselves regularly to help us align our lives to live authentically for Jesus Christ. Here are the three questions we need to ask ourselves to help us live authentically. Number one, where is your heart? Number two, what do you prefer? Number three, whom do you serve? These self-diagnosis alignment questions come straight from the Bible and from Jesus himself. So turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 as we take a look at verses 19 to 24 and see what Christ said. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. These verses are part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and the emphasis of this sermon was to cultivate true, authentic, inward righteousness over a hypocritical outward righteousness that was only for show. It was a sermon primarily about authentic living. Look at the first implied question in verses 19 to 21. I read now verses 19 to 21 of Matthew chapter 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break it and steal. 
But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break it and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here in the Bible, Jesus commands us not to build up earthly treasures, because everything on earth is temporary and will be destroyed. The allusion to rust and moth reminds us that everything will break down and decompose. And the reference to thieves reminds us that things are temporary and easily lost. And yet, these are the things we often strive for in life. We sadly dedicate our entire lives to accumulating things that are temporary and decaying. In fact, all the treasures housed in museums around the world should be a vivid reminder that we can't take anything with us when we leave this earth. From the terracotta warriors in Xi'an to the treasures of the Egyptian pharaohs, everything that the rulers thought they could take to the afterlife with them are still here on this side of life. In fact, I want to ask our Buddhist friends who burn fake paper money at funerals, why don't you burn real money? Isn't it if you burn things here so that they can receive it in the afterlife? If you burn fake money here, then they will receive fake paper money there, and it's useless. If you want them to have real money, then you should burn real money, right? That's how the logic goes. And I still haven't gotten a straight answer to this question. But the Bible is clear. The things in this life and on earth are temporary. That's why instead, we are to live our lives to build up our heavenly rewards and treasures that are permanent and eternal and will never decay. Certainly, that is a better use of our time and effort to invest in something that will last for all eternity. Contextually, Jesus was talking about our human propensity to love money and earthly wealth. Clearly, money itself is not evil. We are told to work hard to earn money. In fact, the book of Proverbs teaches that the wise person works hard and makes financial provisions for lean times. First Timothy teaches that believers have a responsibility to provide for their needy relatives, and in fact, we can enjoy what God has given us. What Jesus was warning those listening and us reading against was the love of money. How many families have been devastated or are warring because of money? Money cannot buy happiness or wealth, and yet we continue to pursue it at all costs to the detriment of our own health and happiness. Seems ironic. Jesus is clearly warning that the pursuit of accumulating earthly wealth is a useless and futile act, which is a waste of time and will only bring heartache in the future. And in reality, all of earth's treasures belong to God. And by His sovereignty and grace, He chooses whom to give it to and how much to distribute. Abraham Kuyper made this ringing proclamation. There is not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, this is mine, this belongs to me. Therefore, when we stingily pursue and hoard what is not really even ours, then the Lord is not pleased. You know, when my two boys were young, they would often fight over their shared toys. I remember my older son, Andrew, telling his younger brother, Nathan, that's mine, that's mine, this is mine, as he hoarded all the toys, not wanting to share with his younger brother. 
When I heard this, I would tell Andrew, Actually, Andrew, all of these toys really belong to Daddy and Mommy, even your birthday gifts. We just let you borrow these toys so that you can learn to share. Now, you may think we're terribly mean parents, but, you know, I reminded my children of this truth while they were young so that when they get older and earn their own money to be able to buy their own things, they will understand that ultimately what they really have belongs to God. And they should learn not to hold on to those things so tightly, but learning to give back to God what is His, because it is in His power to give and take away. My friends, this should be the same mindset we have regarding the things of this world. When we hoard the things of this world, we're accumulating what is not really ours, but ironically say this is mine, mine, mine. The things we have in this life is that which is merely entrusted to us by God, and we are to be good stewards of it for the Lord. And understanding this truth would certainly change the way we live and in our approach to the things of this world. That's why verse 20 reminds us that treasures in heaven, our eternal rewards, do not decay and cannot be taken away from us. It is the heavenly things that last forever. So my friends, if you want to invest your time and resources wisely and have a great return on investment or ROI, then invest in your heavenly rewards. The only way for us to earn heavenly rewards is through the work we do in this present life. I've said it many times. What we do in this life will reverberate throughout eternity. So listen carefully. Why do we fight for the scraps of this earth when we've been promised the riches and glories of heaven? Why do we fight for the scraps of this earth when we've been promised the riches and glories of heaven? I pray this perspective will help us with the right approach for how we live our lives this year. Verse 21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This verse sums up what has been presented and asks the probing alignment question, where is your heart? My friends, where is your heart? Is it attracted to the things of the world, or is it centered on the things of God? The body of the famous missionary to Africa, David Livingston, was buried in England where he was born, but his heart was buried in the Africa he loved. At the foot of a tall tree in a small African village, the locals dug a hole and placed in it the heart of this man who they loved and respected. My friends, if you were to die today and left no instructions or no living will for where to be buried, and your friends and family were deciding where to bury you, if your heart were to be buried in the place you loved most based on the consensus of your friends' and family's observations of the time and passions you spent while living, where would it be? Would they bury you at a bank, in the school, on a golf course, under a basketball court, in your office, at a movie theater, in your room with Netflix streaming? Where would they bury your heart? That is the first question we need to ask ourselves to align our lives and live authentically. Where is your heart? What are you living your life for? What are you living this year for. I read now verses 22 to 23. 
The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Here in these verses, Jesus uses the imagery of the eye and what it sees as the gateway of information and learning for the person. The body finds its way through life with the aid of the eye. In that sense, the eye is the lamp of the body. A good and clear eye admits light into the body, but a bad eye leaves the body in darkness. You see, what we choose to look at and fill our minds with will deeply affect us, Jesus said. If the eyes are focused on the good and godly things, then our actions will reflect that. But if our eyes are attracted to and focused on the allure of the sinful world, then we will reflect the world's darkness. And that evil and sin is truly dark, the end of verse 23 tells us. You see, the second alignment question to help us live authentically as Christ's followers is to ask ourselves the question, what do you prefer? What do you prefer? When Jesus asks the listeners, what are you looking at through your eyes? He's asking a question of preference. Do you prefer to look at and seek after godly spiritual things? Or do you prefer and desire the sinful earthly things? You see, my friends, your preference is an indication of where you are in your life. It serves as a life compass. It shows your spiritual maturity. This question is not implying that you need to spend your entire life living in the church, but it has the emphasis that given a choice between the spiritual or the worldly, which would you choose? Your choice indicates where you are spiritually. Think about what you're filling your mind with. I admittedly love watching movies and documentaries on Netflix and Disney+, Plus, like so many of you. I can sit through a three-hour documentary or a two-hour movie without batting an eye. For me, it's a time to relax and a healthy way to escape into another world and to simply take my mind off my own problems and issues. My wife, also like many of you, enjoy watching telenovelas from various cultures, whether Korean or Chinese. In fact, I would sometimes come home to find her crying and sad, not because something terrible had happened, but because someone in the show had died. But what about getting you to spend one to two to three hours of your week reading and studying God's Word? It's like pulling teeth. It would require moving heaven and earth for you to do so. So we pastors try to make it easier for you and simply plead with you for 20 minutes a day spent with God in prayer and reading His Word. But that's too hard. And so we lower the standards to only 10 minutes a day. How about five minutes a day we plead? Once every other day? Just five minutes a week? Just come to church? Or at the very least, pray before you eat? But somehow, even that is too hard. Why? Because we simply don't want to do it. And if we don't want to do it, we won't do it. However, on the other hand, if we enjoy it, then it isn't an issue for us to do it. My friends, do the spiritual things pique your interest? Do you crave after the spiritual things of life? Do you seek after the things of God? If not, then perhaps you can ask yourself why. There is something missing in your life, and you need to align your life in such a way that you allow in the light 
from God's Word to illuminate your person. You know, when you commit to praying, reading God's Word, and being part of the church community, you will find that you fill your mind with light and you will crave more of it. And it becomes easier for you to spend time with the Lord and seek after the things of God. However, if the darkness of a sinful life is never illuminated, then you will continue to be content with living in sinfulness in your life. Remember that when it comes to spiritual things, it's not about being entertained. If you're only attracted to or do the things that entertain you, then you will never have time for the spiritual things. Because oftentimes, spiritual things don't amuse us or entertain us. It serves as a wake-up call to us for what is truly important in life. It deals with matters of life and death, the temporary versus the eternal. So the Bible isn't supposed to entertain. It is to illuminate, correct, rebuke, encourage, and challenge. You know, in America, there are an estimated 120,000 churches, according to the sociologist Simon Brower, and about 6,000 movie theaters in America. 120,000 to 6,000, a ratio of 20 to 1. Which do you think has more effect on defining the American culture? There are probably more than a million churches all around the world, and there are only globally four to five streaming services and four to five social media platforms. Which do you think has a greater impact on defining the global culture? My friends, the light of Christ is not penetrating the world because we don't first let it into our lives. We don't let it shine into our lives first. How can we impact the world? Jesus' words are true. Our preference for what we fill our minds with will affect how we live our lives. And if Christians don't prefer the light or allow the light to enter, then we will not live genuinely or authentically. The less we seek the spiritual, naturally, the more darkness we let in. And if this is the case, then we should not wonder why it is that our culture is growing more corrupt and sinful because we're okay with and accepting of the things of the world. As we do not let the light in, so the darkness is not dispelled. This is why we should be careful what we allow our children to fill their minds with. But also, it should serve as a caution that we ourselves, at whatever age, should be mindful of what we allow to enter our minds. My friends, when you see something that is clearly defined as sin in the Bible, does it shock you? Sin needs to shock you. You must hate sin. Or do you say it's okay? That's how the world operates. It's normal. How you view sin is defined by your worldview, and your worldview is defined by how much of the Scriptures you believe is truth and how much you allow that truth to enter into your life. What is your view of sex outside of the marriage relationship? What is your view of life in the womb? What is your view of gender? How do you view corruption, lying, and cheating? What is your take on how one is saved? Do you believe that everyone goes to heaven? Is there only one way to heaven through Jesus? All of these questions and much more define your worldview. And authenticity in the Christian life only happens when as followers of Jesus Christ, you have a biblical worldview. To develop a biblical worldview, you have to read the Bible and fill your mind with the light of Scripture. By the way, 
it should be noted that balance is involved in this question of our preference. It doesn't mean we abdicate our responsibilities of working, living, and interacting in this world. It just means that if you're going to spend time watching a two-hour movie exposing your mind to a secular worldview, then you need to balance it out with spiritual things like studying God's Word or listening to the teaching of God's Word and countering that secular worldview with a biblical worldview. Because, my friends, that which you prefer will naturally come out of you, meaning if you naturally prefer the spiritual things, it doesn't have to be forced. What is practiced in your life becomes a way of life for you. When your preferences are the things of the Lord, then Christianity is a way of life. Let me share with you a story that some of you have heard before, but it shows the automatic nature of how what we prefer and practice comes out in our lives. When I accompanied my dad in 2001 to Cebu for our church camp there that year, I told my parents, you must promise not to set me up with the young ladies there because I have no intention of marrying someone Asian. However, a delay in a package I was to pick up in my transit through Hong Kong on our way back caused me to spend an extra week in Cebu. I'd planned to backpack all around Cebu Island by myself, but the host insisted that I be under their hospitality and therefore their schedule. There was a group of young professionals who showed me around Cebu, and I took a liking to one of them, Cindy, and I asked my host how I can get to know her more. From an American cultural perspective, you just ask the girl out on a date, but I was told in the Filipino-Chinese culture by her friends that the protocol is for you to first visit her parents and introduce yourself. I found this very odd, like something from the 1900s, because in America, that is asking for her hand in marriage, which was far from my intention. Well, you do things for the people you like and want to get to know, so I set up a date with Cindy and her parents. So my first date with Cindy was in her living room with her and her mom and dad. Fortunately, they left after a while, and I got to spend some time with her, and we hit it off. But as the date drew to a close, and it was getting late in the evening, and I needed to get back to my hotel, I wanted to end the date well. But I'd forgotten to ask her friend, what is the proper way to end a date in the Filipino-Chinese context? In America, especially in Texas, if the date went well, you can perhaps give a plutonic hug. But I thought if I did so, Cindy would think I'm too forceful, too Americanized, too forward. So I began to think in my head, what should I do? Perhaps a handshake, like a business deal, but that seems so robotic. I had seen in some Chinese TV shows on the airplane heading over to the Philippines that I saw that people would wave two feet apart, really close with their two hands, but I thought that was very odd. I saw that people often gave the Korean V sign for victory or for whatever else. But, you know, in my panic, I realized this was very awkward and trying to resolve in my mind how to end this date. I did something that I would regret because having been a pastor for a few years at that time, how do pastors usually end everything? And before I could think about the ramifications, in my stress and panic, what came out of my mouth was, let's pray. And once I said it, I realized I couldn't take it back. What in the world do you pray for? I hope she likes me. I hope we would have a second date. I realized I'd blown it. To this day, I can't remember what I prayed, but I could not take it back. 
I thought to myself, she must think I'm so holy, there is no way she can date me. But you know, a few years later, I got up the courage to ask her why she gave me a second date after that disaster of an ending to our first date. And Sydney told me, well, I'd always prayed to God that he would give me someone who was spiritual. And with all the men courting me at that time, you were the only one to say, let's pray. So I thought, he must be so holy, but at least he's spiritual. And so I pursued that relationship. My natural and automatic response, which was a part of my life, fought off all the contenders and allowed Cindy to be my wife. I think all young people on dates should end their dates with prayer. It would certainly keep you from any temptation. But my point is, when living a life for Christ becomes a part of you, it becomes a way of life. It naturally comes out of you without having to be forced. I read now verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Here Jesus is quite clear that everyone can only serve one master, not two. It's either God or mammon. Mammon is a transliteration of the emphatic form of the Aramaic word mamona, meaning wealth or property. So the third question we are to ask ourselves that align us towards authentic living is, whom do you serve? In fact, the root word emen for mammon in both Hebrew and Aramaic indicates something in which one places confidence. So when we ask the question, whom do you serve? We're also asking the question, in whom do you place your trust and confidence in? In God or the things of the world? Now you may say, but pastor, I can serve both just like I'm able to work for two different employers at the same time, or I can hold two jobs. And that is how many Christians live their lives, trying to straddle both worlds, but end up living disingenuous, hypocritical lives. Jesus is saying, there is a competing object of confidence and affection. It is a competition. It is either one or the other. It is not like working for two competing companies. It's choosing to work for an owner whose policy is you can't work two jobs. You have to choose one. Because each owner demands loyalty and single-minded devotion. To provide anything less than absolute loyalty is to provide no loyalty at all. That's why Jesus stated very clearly in this verse, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. Loyalty to Christ means rejection of the world, and any acceptance of the world's allure is disloyalty to God. It is impossible to place confidence fully in God and to be fully confident also in our wealth and in the world. Bob Vernon, former chief of the LAPD, tells of how the department would test bulletproof vests and demonstrate to rookie officers their value by placing these vests on mannequins and then shooting round after round at them. Then they'd check to see if any of the rounds penetrated the vests. Invariably, the vest would pass the test with flying colors and no bullets would penetrate through the Kevlar. Chief Vernon would then turn to the rookie officers and ask, so do you all believe that wearing a bulletproof vest will stop any bullets and save your life? And all of them would answer, yes. Then Vernon would ask, 
So would any of you volunteer to wear one of these bulletproof vests and let us shoot at you to see if you really believe what you've declared to be true? You can imagine that very few volunteered. What would be your reaction if you were one of these rookie officers? Would you volunteer to put on that vest and let bullets be fired into you? When you say that you believe something, do you live it out? So it is with Christ. If we say we trust Him and serve Him exclusively, then are we willing to live our lives such that our faith is tried and tested even if we draw fire from the world? Can our faith be unshaken and confident when the darts of the evil one are thrown at us? When it comes to the question of whom we serve, it is impossible to have split loyalties. You can't equally divide your time, your attention, your faith between God and the world. It will be one or the other. Everyone is busy. I know what it is like to work 100 hours a week. If you try to, quote-unquote, fit God into your schedule, He will never fit into your schedules because there will always be something more important, something more urgent, something more pressing that will push God away. Only when He is the most important and you block off your schedules first for Him and then fill in everything else around the time you have set aside for Him, will time with the Lord make it onto your calendars and schedules. On your calendars, do you have Sunday morning set aside for going to church or having a time of worship? Do you have 15 to 30 minutes blocked off every morning or evening to spend time with Him in prayer and reading God's Word? Think through the years. How many of you have thought of or said to others, I'm sorry, I can't make it to church today because I have a more important social event. But how many of you have ever said to your friends, I'm sorry, I can't make it to the social event because I have blocked off this time for the Lord to spend time with Him. He is my priority. Something to think about when we tell God and the world that He is first in our lives and we're totally loyal in serving Him. Is our proclamation consistent with our actions? You know, growing up, I was never allowed to skip going to church. And I don't think it was because my parents were pastors. When I told them I was tired as an excuse not to go, they would tell me, you had time to stay up late playing computer games the night before. You can certainly go to church. Or you can sleep in the car and take a nap in the afternoon. When I told them I had to study and do homework, thinking my Asian parents would place studies and good grades above worshiping God, they would tell me to study in the car or on Sunday afternoon or ask me why I had time to watch TV on Saturday. Basically, only if I was in the hospital or dead would I be allowed to skip church. Now, you may think I had mean parents, and while they were strict, their actions showed me one thing very clearly— that when they said God was first in their lives and in our family's life, they meant it. It showed in action. So many children see the hypocrisy of Christian parents who claim to prioritize God above all things, but don't do so in action. My friends, you either serve God or you serve the things of this world. There is no middle ground. You know, one of the reasons we can't let go of the things of the world is because we have put in too much time and resources into the temporary treasures of this life. And once roots are established, it's hard to pick up and go. We've forgotten that we're called to be strangers and pilgrims in this land, 
meaning we need to travel light. You know the difference between an experienced traveler and an inexperienced one? An experienced traveler packs light and doesn't check in luggage. When I was first learning how to travel, I packed like Noah's Ark, two of everything, multiples of things, just in case something broke or something was lost. But I realized I never used three-fourths of those things I packed and had to lug around the airports and around the cities I visited. So now I pack light, and if I need anything, I just go to the local grocery store or 7-Eleven. It is so freeing to pack light. You are not tied down and can move around with ease and joy. So it is with the things of the world. When you don't have so much to hold on to, then it's easy to let go and be free to live for Christ. My friends, don't be a slave to the things of this world, the things that you own. You know, I have a friend that when he buys a new car or a new gadget, the first thing that he does is that he takes his car keys and puts a few scratches in the side of his new luxury car, or he will intentionally scratch the back of his new phone. Why? Because he says he will not be a slave to his car or to his gadgets. Because we all know about being captives to the new. We keep the original boxes to our phones as if we're going to try to sell it again. We take extra special care of our new cars and our new gadgets to the point of not really enjoying it as we should. But those things really become useful when they're a bit scratched up and we don't have to worry about newspapers or plastics in our cars or cases and protective screens on our gadgets. I hope you see my point. Don't be a slave to the things of this world. Are you so invested in the things of this world that instead of being a pilgrim and traveler, you become a permanent resident? Whom do you serve? Because only when that question is answered will you be able to live an authentic Christian life. Finally, let me end with this story as we start the new year. It's the story of an old deacon who used to pray every Wednesday night at their church's prayer meeting. And he always concluded his prayer the same way. And Lord, clean all the cobwebs out of my life. The cobwebs were those things that ought not to have been there, but had gathered during the week. It got too much for one fellow who also attended the prayer meetings. And he heard the old deacon one time too often, and he reacted. So when the man made that prayer, that fellow jumped to his feet and shouted, Lord, Lord, don't do it. Kill the spider kill the spider. That's what we need to happen, my friends. Every year, we pray to start over and clean the cobwebs of our lives. But how about this year, we pray to kill the spider so there would be no cobwebs. Let's all live authentic Christian lives this year, and we can do so by regularly asking ourselves these three questions. Where is your heart? In the things of the world or the things of God? What do you prefer, the things of the world or the things of God? Whom do you serve, God or the world? My friends, have a blessed new year as we all strive to live authentic Christian lives with the help of the Holy Spirit in order to please our Lord and to serve as a witness of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that on this start of a new year, you give us an opportunity to start anew. May it be that we examine our lives and align our lives to the Scriptures, that our heart, our preference, and whom we choose to serve will be you and not the world. All too often we are drawn to the world 
thinking we can straddle both worlds, but help us to be reminded that we can only serve you, our Master and our Lord. Father, I pray that we would get serious with our spiritual lives, that we would seek to allow the light of Jesus Christ to enter our lives, and so the darkness will be dispelled. And may the light of Jesus Christ in our lives be so full in our lives that we will be able to reflect Christ to a dark world. Father, challenge us, and may this year be an amazing year that we live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.